This morning, as we continue our study on denominations, I'll give you a heads up. My plan is it'll be this week and next week, and next week we'll finish up the study. Uh, so if I haven't covered something that you wanted to know about, now would be the time to come see me and say, hey, are you going to talk about this? Could you talk about this? Because um, I plan on wrapping up next week with this study. But this morning, as we begin, uh, I want to look at, start with looking at a doctrine. And this would be thinking about the Lord's Supper. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up to Matthew chapter 26. This is where we see, at least in the book of Matthew, the Lord instituting the Lord's Supper. We see this in uh most, if not all, the Gospels, as well as in 1 Corinthians. And so we'll read this passage where the Lord talks about the Lord's Supper in Matthew chapter 26. And so Matthew 26, uh, starting in verse 26 and going through verse 29, the word of the Lord says this. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins." I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And then if you were to turn over to 1 Corinthians, you would see essentially the same thing in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, Paul adds a few words uh, when he talks about the cup. Specifically said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we read here about the Lord's Supper in Matthew 26 and in 1 Corinthians 11. And as we think about some denominations this morning, uh, I wanted to focus on this because sometimes this is a distinguishing factor in denominations, how we view the Lord's Supper and what it is actually about and what we're doing when we partake of the bread and the cup. And so, uh, there are really three views on what's happening at the Lord's Supper. One is called transubstantiation. That's the Catholic understanding. And that is the view transubstantiation. So, transubstantiation. So, you can see the words there just trans, it changes into something, and substance, which is a good representation because they believe that the, the bread and the cup literally transforms into the body and blood of Jesus, right? So that's called transubstantiation. That would be the Catholic understanding of the Lord's Supper or communion. They often call it the Eucharist. Um, and connected to that, right, Catholics believe that when you take the Lord's Supper, it is actually conferring grace to you in a way that we, uh, you could say, achieve or maintain good standing before the Lord. Uh, so it has an effect on our justification, 
Uh, that goes back to Catholic understanding of a lot of things. But that's, uh, I'll, I'll talk more about that in a minute, but that's something called sacramentalism, where taking the ordinances actually has an effect upon the grace we receive or our standing before God. So that's the Catholic view, transubstantiation. Then you've got a slightly different view, and that is the Lutheran position. And the technical term is consubstantiation. Uh, so you get to learn a bunch of fancy words this morning. Consubstantiation, con just means with. Uh, so Luther's phrase is not that the bread becomes the body and blood of Jesus, but the presence of Jesus is in, with, and below the bread and the cup. So he still believes and still taught technically that the physical presence of Jesus is there, but the elements themselves are not changed to become the body and blood of Christ. It's still just bread. It's still just wine or grape juice or whatever is used, right? But that is still uh, slightly different uh, than other positions, right? Because he still believes in the, the physical presence of Jesus at the Lord's Supper. So transubstantiation, consubstantiation. And then I'm going to say there's a third view. Some people break it down into four views. But for the sake of this morning, there's a third view. And this would be the symbolic uh, understanding. We don't get a fancy term. You know, transubstantiation, consubstantiation, and then there's symbolic. Uh, so this would be the view that uh, traditionally Baptists have held. And... Uh, this goes all the way back to the time of the Reformation with uh, Zwingli and others at that time. But they, and we would say that the elements, the, the bread and the cup, symbolize Christ and what he has done. Uh, but that Christ is not physically present. It doesn't transform into the body and blood of Jesus. But these are symbols that we are reminded by, we remember Jesus and what he's done because of these things. And so you see that even in the phrase that we read in 1 Corinthians, do this in remembrance of me. That's kind of the emphasis, right? These things are to remember Jesus. They don't actually change our standing before God, but we are reminded of what God has done for us already and we're reminded that in a real sense jesus is with us not physically in the bread in the cup but his presence is actually with us as we gather together as a church right he's promised to be with us as individual believers and so that symbolic understanding is a reminder to us of what jesus has done on the cross and that he's spiritually present with us even though he's not physically here yet and so those are really the three views. And I think it's helpful to think back just to some history of the Bible. That's probably not the right way to phrase it. But the big storyline of the Bible, when we think about communion or the Lord's Supper, because really the Lord's Supper fits into the bigger picture of what's going on in the Bible and where we are right now and where we're headed and where we've been. Because in the beginning... When God created Adam and Eve, they were with God. They were in the presence of God, and they 
you could rightly say they feasted with God. They ate with God. They walked with God. They were in his presence. But then sin separated them and us from God, right? We cannot be with God in that kind of fellowship because we have sinned. And sin does not ex- cannot exist in the holiness of God, right? We can't be in that kind of relationship with God and have that fellowship with him if we are sinners. Well, then we fast forward a long way and we get to the New Testament and we see Jesus. What did he do? He came and died in our place to deal with our sin so that we could be restored to this relationship with God. We, our sin is completely done away with. It's completely forgiven. When we ask God to forgive us, we commit and declare that he is my Lord, right? We are made completely righteous, completely holy in the eyes of God, even though we haven't been completely sanctified yet, right? But that is how God views us because that's how Jesus is. And so we really do have a restored fellowship with God because of what Jesus did on the cross. And so the Lord's Supper is a reminder of that, that we really do have the presence of God with us again. In a certain sense, we have a reminder that we're in his presence right now when we partake of the Lord's Supper. And we have a reminder of what's coming because one day, it's not just going to be symbolic, one day we will physically be in the presence of the Lord again. And you remember what Jesus said, he was not going to partake of this meal again until he eats it with us in the kingdom. So we look forward to that day when we eat with him, feast with him in the kingdom and that fellowship is restored like it was in the garden where we walk with God. And so the Lord's Supper is a reminder to us of this trajectory throughout the Bible, how we started with Adam and Eve and they had perfect communion fellowship with God that was broken by sin. Jesus restores that and we wait for the day when he comes back and we are physically with God. And so that's kind of the trajectory of the Bible. So that's three views, a brief overview, three views on the Lord's Supper. And the reason I started with that is because this morning I want to talk about Lutheranism. And then depending on time, we may touch a couple other denominations as well. Um, As we're wrapping up, I'm putting more than one into each Wednesday. Uh, But Lutherans, Uh, as you can tell from the name, started from Martin Luther in the Reformation, right? So he nailed the 95 Thesis on the the door in Wittenberg. Uh, The anniversary is October 31st. Uh, You can always remember that uh, because it's the same day as Halloween, but back then it wasn't uh, Halloween like we know it today. It was the, the eve of All Saints Day on November 1st. But anyways, he nailed the 95 Theses. Uh, He had these things that were going on with the Catholic Church that were a problem, and he spoke about them, and people understood that, yeah, what he's saying is right, that the Catholic Church really has missed the boat on some things, uh, some big things. Uh, The main thing he talked about was justification, how we are made righteous by God, not because of anything we do, so, but it's only because of what Jesus has done. The way we're saved, the way God says you're good and in good standing with me, it's not because we keep enough rules. It's not because we say we're going to follow him and then keep enough rules. Uh, But it's because 
we believe that Jesus has done everything that needs to be done for us to be saved. And so Martin Luther was one of the main people who recovered that doctrine that had been, you could say, forgotten in the Catholic Church. And so Lutheranism starts out of that idea as people were leaving the Catholic Church. Uh, and so today, you could fast forward to today, and Lutheranism has kind of split into uh, several different denominations, like most denominations. They have the more, uh, you could say, liberal theology parts of the denomination, uh, or denominations, and then more conservative, confessional denominations. So I'll just give you an example. The, uh, the one that's more on the liberal side would be the... Uh, Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the ELCA, they're the mainline kind of liberal theology, Lutheran Church. And then you have more conservative ones like the Missouri Synod of Lutherans, or I believe it's, what's the technical abbreviation? LCMS, Lutheran Church Missouri Synod is the technical uh, uh, abbreviation. Uh, but you don't have to be in Missouri to be a part of that. Um, actually, our Lutheran church that's here in Sulphur is a part of the LCMS. And so they would, at least based on that, be on the more conservative end of things when it comes to uh, certain doctrines, believing the Bible, and things like that. And so that's, uh, that's some denominations, a little bit of history. But some of the things that are distinct about Lutheranism would be if you want to read about them, you can find their beliefs in the Augsburg Confession. That's kind of their main confession. And really, I highlighted the Lord's Supper because that is one of the interesting, distinct things from us that they believe. They believe something different about the Lord's Supper. And it, it's hard to say, but it, in my mind, kind of tends towards sacramentalism. Uh, which is a technical term, like the Catholic Church. You know, I think part of it is because they were coming out of the Catholic Church and they saw that they had lost the gospel. And so they, they firmly believe and Luther firmly affirms that we are justified by faith alone in Christ. But I think you see in the Lutheran Church some of the, the fragments of Catholicism still clinging on because they come straight out of Catholicism. And so I think that carries over a little bit when it comes to the Lord's Supper or when it comes to baptism. They would baptize infants. Um, they would see that as actually having a, an effect to some extent in producing faith in the child. And in communion, they do view that as not only the real presence of Christ there, like we talked about, but they do view communion as giving some kind of real grace to us. And so there are a lot of uh, intricacies you could get into with that, but it makes me a little uneasy. I'll just put it that way. Uh, it makes me think it's a little too close to Catholicism and their view of needing to do things in order to gain the favor of God with how they talk about baptism and communion. Uh, so those are some of the just general doctrines from them as well. Um, there's not a lot more. I mean, you could say some other things. They're not Pentecostal. They're usually amillennial in their views of end times 
and they're actually kind of congregational uh, for the most part, sometimes Episcopal, depending on the denomination. So that's their church structure. So that would be Lutherans. Let me... This one's going to take two minutes, so I'll do it. <laughs> uh, let me move on to Bible churches, because sometimes you'll find those. There's, there's at least one or two in the area. Bible churches are kind of a mix of Presbyterian and Baptist. That's, generally speaking, the easiest way to describe it. If you go to a Bible church, it's probably going to look just like a Baptist church in just about everything. The main difference is they're going to have a lot fewer business meetings because they have what's called elder rule, which is more of a Presbyterian idea. So they have basically the pastors are the ones responsible for making all the decisions for the church. Uh, they're, they're elected by the church, but then they make the major decisions. So that's the general idea behind elder rule. But apart from that, they are generally mostly Baptists. Uh, as far as baptism, membership, things like that. They're heavily connected to Dallas Theological Seminary, and so they generally have uh, dispensational premillennial views, and sometimes those are written into their statement of faith, which is interesting, I think. Um, so they do actually generally require that you hold that view of end times to be a member in their church, which is a little unique. We don't require that as Baptists in the SBC, that you hold a certain view of the end time. As long as you believe Jesus is coming back physically and will reign, uh, we don't uh, put a requirement on the timeline or things like that. So that's, uh, you could say, the Bible church. And that's, what time are we at? That's really all I have to say about them. And just for fun, I'll wrap up with the Church of the Nazarene. <laughs> So they came out of the Church of the Nazarene. You may see some of those as well. There are some in Lake Charles. They came out of the Wesleyan movement, holiness movement. Um, they believe that you can achieve salvation or, or holiness here on earth. And they're basically Methodists uh, with those extra views. And so that would be Church of the Nazarene. Generally, they have Methodist views, but they stress the holiness aspect of Methodism, which is uh, not a bad thing, obviously. We want to live holy before the Lord. Uh, we would just disagree that people achieve that here on earth with the stain of sin that clings to us. All right, so those are the denominations. I'll stop there, uh, but those are a few of them. Lutherans, Bible Church, Church of the Nazarene, and we thought about the Lord's Supper this morning.